This is a project to develop a new technology for an ocular drug delivery device. Uh, and since this is a collaboration between ophthalmology and bioengineering, we'll have the presentation in two parts. I'm Robert Bissacool. I'm a retina surgeon at the University of California, San Francisco. And I will introduce this with a clinical background, with a description of the diseases that we're trying to treat, and with the unmet clinical need that we have currently uh, in the way that we treat patients with these retina diseases. And this will serve as an introduction to, for my colleague, Tejal Desai, uh, in bioengineering at, U at UCSF, who will give a description of the translational research project that we have and the progress we've made with translating this technology to an ocular drug delivery device. Uh, as background, I'll give uh, for some members of the audience that might not be ophthalmologists, we'll give a brief description of the basic anatomy of the eye. The eye, of course, is a small spherical structure. The front part of the eye uh, is to allow light to enter into the eye to be focused onto the retina. And the retina is the neural tissue of the eye that's sensitive to light, that sends an image back to the brain. The retina is, uh, can be thought of as the wallpaper that lines the inside of the eye. And the space inside the vitreous cavity is filled with a clear gel. And it's that space that we use to inject a lot of the drugs that I'll, that I'll describe later to treat retinal diseases. Now, the center of the retina, the bullseye of the retina, is known as the macula. And that's what we see here as you, as you look through the pupil straight back into the center of the retina. And it's this postage-stamp-sized sti postage area of the retina that is really responsible for all of our high-resolution vision, the vision that we need for daily function. There's even a small area with a depression that's shown alongside here where it's only 200 microns in size. That's the fovea, and that's really where we get our 20-20 vision, our high-resolution vision. So this is the part of the retina that we're trying to protect with these retinal diseases that I'll describe next. Some of these retinal diseases that we uh, see every day in clinic that, are, that, are, uh, that affect many patients in the United States are, are shown here. The first is age-related macular degeneration, or AMD. The wet form of this disease causes blood vessels to grow underneath the retina, causes bleeding and leakage of fluid underneath the retina and into the retina, and can cause a blind spot and severe vision loss. It's the most common cause of severe vision loss in the elderly population, and it's estimated to affect about 200,000 people every year in the United States alone. Another large disease category uh, here is diabetic retinopathy. It's thought this is a disease that affects the working age population mostly, and there's 25,000 new cases of blindness from diabetic retinopathy, and there's millions of patients that remain at risk for this every year. In this disease, the blood vessels are abnormal again. They leak fluid, they leak blood into the retina, and they cause macular edema. A third category of disease that's uh, uh, very common that we're treating every day is retinal vein occlusion. This happens most frequently in patients with high blood pressure, or with cardiovascular disease, and it's estimated it affects about over 10 million people globally. Uh, here you have a blocked circulation in the back of the eye near that macula, and this causes fluid and hemorrhage to build up in the, in the macula, again causing macular edema. In the past 10 years or so, we've had expanding drugs that we can use to treat these diseases very effectively. And we have a range of diseases, not only the ones that I talked about there, but many other diseases that we're uh, now able to treat for the first time. Because of drugs that we are injecting into the eye, uh, this is a class of drugs against uh, vascular endothelial growth factor. Uh, the 
first one that became available was Lucentis, and there's also Avastin and Ilea in this class, and some other drugs, all of which we're injecting into the eye to treat these diseases. And every year in the United States alone, we're doing millions of these treatments. This is what the treatment looks like from the uh, patient's perspective. It's done in the office with local anesthesia that you can see is being injected here. And the eye is held open with this lid speculum, washed off with a sterilizing solution, iodine. And then we can give the injection of the drug that we're using directly into the eye. And you can see this is difficult for the patient. The eye is irritated afterwards. It's painful. Uh, the eye can have some unsightly hemorrhage afterwards for a few days. Uh, but at the same time, it's a very effective solution. We can take a tiny amount of the drug, we inject it into the eye right at the target tissue, and it's sequestered somewhat in the eye so that it doesn't get into the bloodstream and cause unwanted effects, uh, systemic effects, but is uh, contained within the eye. Uh, other drawbacks. When we give these treatments for these diseases, they are frequent injections that we have to do. It's not a once and treat, once treat, one treatment and you're done, but it looks like we have to treat these patients as often as monthly. And for a disease like wet macular degeneration, it's on average seven to eight times a year. And unfortunately, it's not just for one or two years. Uh, as we learn more about these treatments, we see that we have to maintain this regimen of treatment for many years, perhaps lifelong. There's some other uh, drawbacks from this therapy as well. There's risks with this injection. You can get a low risk of a serious infection inside of the eye. And then there's the treatment burden. Uh, it's, un, it's painful and uncomfortable for the patient, but also the patient and their family have to come into the office for frequent ongoing visits. The doctors and their staff have to handle this workload. And so it's a significant treatment burden that I think uh, uh, we've, we still have not completely adapted to. Uh, from, the, uh, from the pharmacologic standpoint, when we inject these drugs into the eye, we have peaks and troughs. When we initially inject it into the eye as a bolus, we have an order of magnitude too much drug that's in the eye that's not needed. And then it rapidly begins to decline so that there's a subtherapeutic tail that occurs and there's not enough drug left in the eye at a, somewhere around a month. Uh, so those, these are all our motivations to try to find a new way to deliver drugs into the eye besides just injecting them directly into the eye as fluids. From here, we'll concentrate on one of the diseases that I talked about, wet macular degeneration, wet AMD. And this is for elderly patients, and it, this is a depiction of what it's like from their standpoint. The patients, once they have the onset of the disease, develop blurriness, they develop a blind spot, they develop distortion in the center of the vision so that they can have severe vision loss. About seven or eight years ago, we had a major breakthrough in treating macular degeneration with a drug called Lucentis. This is a biologic drug. It's an antibody fragment against VEGF. Uh, this, is, this graph is showing a phase three clinical trial over two years. And on the y-axis, we're seeing the change in vision. So above, up, going, up, uh, going upward is an improvement in vision. Going downward is a decline in vision over time. And you can see from the blue line in the control group, this is what it used to be like for our patients. With the onset of wet macular degeneration, there was a steady inevitable decline in vision for almost all of the patients so that they had severe vision loss over a year or two years to the point where they would almost universally become uh, legally blind. The red line shows uh, the dramatic benefit of using the Lucentis drug in these patients. For the first time, we saw improvement in vision for these patients where they restored their visual function over three or four months, and this was maintained over two years. Now, a couple of things to point out. In this clinical trial, the patients received the injection of this drug every month for two years, so a total of 24 injections. Uh, 
That's a lot of treatments. So physicians and, and others immediately started looking for ways that we could reduce this burden and make the treatment more manageable. And this, uh, this slide here on the top is showing that when we reduce the frequency of the treatments compared to monthly injection, the lower frequency treatments also have a lower benefit. And the bottom frame here is showing a study that I conducted with uh, 14 investigators around the country. And we looked at a cohort of patients from the original phase three clinical trial, and we did an update assessment on them seven years after, uh, seven years afterwards. And the red line shows this. And you can see over the first two years, the patients with monthly injections had a beautiful increase in their vision. Uh, but once they stopped the monthly injections, there was a steady decline. Uh, and uh, so out between years three and year seven, there was a very low free treatment frequency. The physicians were only electing to inject two times per year for these patients. And on average, there was a loss of the initial benefit and even uh, a reversal of the benefit. So the patients ended up with a vision that was below their starting baseline. So a couple things to point out here. Doctors and patients have to face that we cannot limit the number of these injections the way we'd like to. And as this study shows, at least out to seven years, these patients are at risk to lose vision so that we're going to have to maintain this intensive treatment regimen for at least many years and possibly for lifelong therapy. So how do we solve this problem? Uh, in, work, in collaborating with Tejal Desai, we have uh, drawn up some target profile that we want for this device to have from the clinician standpoint and from the patient standpoint. We want this to be a device that when we put it into the eye, it delivers the drug effectively for at least four to six months. We want to maintain precise concentrations with this drug so both that we avoid the peaks and we avoid the troughs, but it has another benefit of precisely controlling the kinetics of the drug release with this device in that because the eye is such a small structure, there are real limits to how much drug that we can put into these devices uh, because the devices have to be kept so small. So we have to take a very small payload and stretch it out over many months by precisely controlling the drug release. And this is what allows us to, to maximize a small drug payload. Some other uh, characteristics that we want the device to have, we want this to be an office procedure that's done pretty similar to what all of us are already doing, an, inject an injectable device that can be done in the office with local anesthesia. Uh, the materials for the device should be degradable materials so that we don't have to go in later and remove these devices or we don't have accumulation of, uh, of materials in the eye as we treat these patients over the years. And finally, we want this to be a platform for a number of drugs, both for the drugs that we have already available for a number of different diseases and also some of the drugs that are in the pipeline that will allow us to treat, uh, will, will allow us to treat other diseases uh, in the very near future. So all of this is by way of an introduction in the clinical background here, and it sets the table for my colleague, Tejal Desai, who will now come in and talk about some of the progress we've made in this translational project. Hi, I'm Tejal Desai, and I'm a professor in bioengineering and therapeutic sciences at UCSF. And I want to continue our discussion on developing uh, new ocular drug delivery systems. As uh, suggested in part one, um, we really have an unmet need in how to develop uh, treatment strategies for delivering drugs to the back of the eye. And my colleague, um, Dr. Robert Bissacool, um, eloquently described um, what our unmet need is in terms of how to get drugs effectively and safely to that region in the eye. Um, what was interesting is that we actually met 
because he was describing um, how there's these wonderful drugs that are able to improve uh, ocular vision. And uh, really, the way that they administer them are sort of dating back from the the 19th century in terms of injecting them with a needle. And so we started talking at a forum that brought together uh, clinical ophthalmologists as well as bioengineers and realized that there really was a unique opportunity to develop a technology that could uh, more effectively and um, have better safety and compliance for the patient. So where are we in terms of thinking about drug delivery for the eye? Uh, There actually are a lot of technologies that have been developed. Uh, We have everything from uh, what we call non-degradable implants. These are large uh, devices or cages that are put into the eye. Uh, But as you can see, um, they range from everything from a a reservoir to an actual screw that gets screwed into the eye. they stay there for the lifetime of the patient. So once you put these types of devices into the eye, um, they are basically there for the rest of your lifetime. So uh, one of the things, as Bob mentioned, we wanted to actually develop something that was degradable. So there also were some advances in biodegradable implants that were placed in the eye. Um, Some of the things like microspheres and smaller pellets had been developed. But all of these systems actually had only been developed for very small molecules being delivered to the eye and could only really last um, for very short time periods. So as Bob mentioned, we actually needed to develop something that would last at least four to six months and um, be able to be uh, deliver this drug in a very, very precise manner, but then degrade at the end. And none of these systems actually did that. And finally, we saw that there were also some cell-based implants being developed. And again, this was an idea that potentially could have merit in the future, but for actually treating today's patient, um, there was nothing uh, already developed that would treat the unmet need. So when we think about the landscape and how people are approaching uh, the delivery of drugs to the eye, we really decided that um, there was an unmet need in developing long-term biologic delivery devices that could be degradable and also injectable. And if you look at this graph, um, what I'm pointing out here is that topical eye drops, we sort of think about that as a way to deliver drugs, um, can really only last on the order of hours to days. Um, When you think about putting an eye drop into your eye, um, very little of that medicine actually penetrates deep within the eye. And in fact, eye drops are really limited to very, very small molecules. Uh, things that can easily pass through the junctions of the cornea. If we think about um, things that are being currently injected, those are the drugs that uh, Bob mentioned. They're the larger antibodies or proteins. And, of course, we can deliver them um, with fairly uh, large uh, amounts, but we do that in a very invasive way. And this is something that, again, we talked about. These are delivered monthly, so an injection every single month in order to get these larger proteins into the eye. And finally, uh, there are these larger delivery devices that I mentioned. But to date, there is nothing available that can actually deliver large proteins uh, as well as be biodegradable. So where are we trying to go? We're trying to develop a device that will really uh, marry the best of all of these different technologies, which is something that will sit in the back of the eye 
deliver these large and small molecules, but do so in a way that is as uh, uh, easy and safe for the patient and relatively uh, low invasiveness. Okay, so the question is, how do we control drug levels? It sounds easy. We just want to get the right drug in the right concentration to the right place, but it's not so trivial. And in fact, uh, most drug delivery systems actually give you a lot of drug right away and then, over time, give you very little amounts of drug. And that's sort of what we think about um, when we think about conventional drug delivery systems. Um, You have a reservoir with um, your given drug, and drug comes out of that reservoir based on fixed law, which uh, essentially says that diffusion is concentration-dependent. So if I have a lot of molecules on one end, uh, the molecules will diffuse out um, based on the concentration difference. Um, that tends to give us profiles that look like this, where you have a burst release followed by a plateau. And uh, in the case of the eye, this is not what we want. We actually want a very small amount of drug to be given over a long period of time. So how can we change this sort of kinetics? Well, it turns out that if you um, shrink down your reservoir, such that you're one to two times the molecular diameter of your drug of interest, so looking at uh, panel number two, um, you can actually constrain the drug molecules such that they can only come out one at a time. So if you do that, instead of having burst release, where all of the drugs try to get out at the same time, um, you can only have one drug molecule coming out at any given one time. And the analogy that I like to use is um, one of a a movie theater where if you have 100 people in the audience or you have 1,000 people in the audience, if there's only one exit door and somebody yells fire and everybody races to get out, actually the rate of escape or the rate of getting out of that movie theater is not dictated by how many people are concentrated in the theater. It's really dictated by how many people can escape out that door. And if only one person can come out, then only uh, the rate is only dependent on um, how long it takes for all of those people to get out. So we apply that same principle, and we are able to get these very linear release rates. And if we create very many tiny nanoscale pores, um, what we can then do is tune that release rate up and down. And that's what we employ for designing our drug delivery systems. So how do we do that? Well, my lab uh, and many of my colleagues have been working to develop materials in which we can precisely create nanopores. Um, And just an example, these are some of the materials that we've worked on in the past, ranging from uh, nanoporous alumina, uh, nanoporous silicon, as well as titanium. And as you can see, Uh, There are very, very defined architectures that are made in all of these materials. And we can control the pore size from anything from a couple of nanometers up to hundreds of nanometers or even microns. And what's unique about these materials is that they don't have what we call a pore size distribution. So uh, whatever we design, every single pore has the same size. And this is important for sort of taking advantage of that effect I mentioned and getting a very, very linear profile. How linear is this profile? Well, for example, if we wanted to deliver something like albumin, 
this is a protein that has a molecular weight of about 66,000, um, we can essentially design pore sizes that are anywhere from 30 nanometers down to 13 nanometers. And if you take a look at the graph on the top, what that's showing you is just uh, the difference from going from a sort of conventional Fickian type of uh, arrangement where you actually see this uh, burst release to something that's much more linear. And when you get down to interferon, which is even smaller, uh, down to about 19,000 molecular weight, um, we have to really go down to nanometer-sized pores that are on the order of 10 to 13 nanometers to get that linear release. So by thinking about what molecule we're interested in, we can design a pore size that precisely fits that molecule and gives us this linear profile. So why do we care? Uh, as uh, we keep mentioning, getting into this uh, precise rate of release gives us what we call uh, a therapeutic window. So instead of giving a lot of drug and having wastage of drug and actually having side effects from overdosing, um, what we get is something that gives us just enough drug to be physiologically effective and treat the disease but doesn't um, give us the toxicity that's associated with a lot of drug, and also is not subtherapeutic. So we're actually giving uh, something that's right in the, the region that we want. So forgetting the highs and lows that are associated with injection, and really going into what we call the therapeutic window. So one of the challenges with sort of thinking about the eye uh, was mentioned uh, by Bob as well, and that was... Um, this is a pretty small space. We really can't think about a large implant uh, that sits in the eye and bounces around. It has to be an implant that's relatively thin, transparent, flexible, can be injected via a needle. And most of the work that people have done in terms of creating nanoporous materials has conventionally been done in inorganic materials. So the, the ceramics and the, uh, some of the metal oxides that I mentioned earlier. And so our challenge was, how could we actually create um, very small pores in a thin, flexible material, um, almost like a contact lens type of material? So what we ended up doing is actually developing a, developed a technique called nanotemplating. And so this is uh, actually pretty simple to understand. Um, it's really sort of creating a replica of a mold. But instead of something on a large scale, what we're doing is creating a very, very small structure and then um, replicating that off of a different material. So for example, um, in this image, what we're showing is a inorganic uh, porous material. So uh, this is the, the picture shown here. Uh, this is nanopores. And then if we press another material, a, a polymer, a soft material, on those pores, um, what we get is the inverse of that structure. In this case, these are nanowires that project out of the surface. And so, uh, we, as you can see, we get very precise structures by using this method. So we can do the opposite, which is we can create nanowires and then uh, template off a soft material and create nanopores. And this is what we did. Um, we actually uh, develop a process where we can create very thin films of nanoporous polymers um, from nanorod templates. And 
Um, the details of this process are not um, necessarily important, uh, except for the, the fact that if you look here, um, what we're essentially doing is we're growing these rods. And these rods can be controlled in terms of uh, their width, their diameter, their spacing. We then spin a thin film. This can be any polymer of interest. We've been using something called polycaprolactone. This is a, a biodegradable polymer, and it's uh, very flexible and robust. And then we um, basically sandwich that between a structural layer that will hold it in place. Uh, because if we have a very, very porous layer, it may be too fragile. Uh, so we sort of sandwich multiple layers to create something that a surgeon can actually manipulate. Um, one of the things within our field of nanotechnology is that we want to create things that um, are easily adaptable by uh, the clinician. And so again, really thinking about creating a structure, but then adapting that structure in a way that could be administered in the clinic. What does this look like? Well, uh, before, if you look at the rods, um, you can see they have all of this um, morphology of things sticking out of the, the, the surface. But uh, when you look at the pores, it's the inverse of that. So we can do that essentially with any structure. And after we do that, what we get are these thin films. And you can see uh, from looking at the image, the actual nanoporous region is this one that's sort of the opaque area within the film. When it gets hydrated, it actually becomes transparent. But the nice thing about these films is they're actually very uh, rollable or frillable. Um, they can actually fit into a needle. And that's the same needle that is used today in the clinic. Um, so we can take, you know, conceptually, we can take these films and put them into a needle that every uh, ophthalmologist is already familiar with using. Now, if we take an electron microscope and we zoom into what that structure is of that porous area, um, what we see is that we have a whole region, which is uh, essentially a, a, a microporous region, this, this sort of uh, area here. And then if you zoom in, what you see is there is this nanoporous region. And this nanoporous region is really the rate-limiting limiting region. That's the region that's going to constrain our molecules and keep our molecules coming out uh, one at a time in a very uh, precise rate. How do we make this a device? Well, uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about how do you put in a drug, keep that drug stable, maintain bioactivity, and then have this as a device that can be put into the body. And so um, what we came up with was a, a method to take two of those thin films that we create through that templating technique, um, basically encapsulate a drug around that film. So the red dot in the schematic is the drug that we can either pellet or we can put that in a powder or liquid solution. We then bring the two films together. And we do that basically by um, holding two weights and bringing the films and then heat sealing those films. And what we end up with is basically a device that has um, the drug cargo in the middle. Uh, but it's essentially a very thin, flexible film. The shape, the size, the actual um, morphology of the film can be changed very easily. And so uh, as we so talked about earlier, this can be adapted to a range of different drugs in a range of different durations. 
If we want something to last for one month versus four months versus two years, we can simply change the size or the porosity of those films. What does that get us doing all this, this nano-templating? Well, what it does is it gives us um, that very, very precise control of drug release. So these are two graphs. Um, this is just showing a model protein, which is uh, bovine serum albumin. And what I'm showing you is on top, basically, release, date, release rate per day. So um, this is over 200 days, so greater than four months. And uh, essentially, what you're seeing is that the release rate um, of these devices stays between uh, one and two micrograms per day. Um, and that goes out all the way across those 200 days. So uh, if we want 10 micrograms per day, we can dial it in to make it 10 micrograms being released over that duration. If we want something smaller, we can dial it in. But the important thing is that we can take what was uh, a once a month payload, which is 500 micrograms, and essentially make that last for four to six months. So uh, given the current clinical standard of care where we're injecting a bolus of 500 micrograms, uh, this is the same amount of drug, so we don't worry about toxicity, but we're extending or stretching, as was mentioned in the earlier presentation, the drug profile out to several months. We can do this with Lucentis. So this is that great drug that is able to actually improve visual acuity. And uh, again, you see this linear release. Uh, the release is shown over about 120 days, but it continues up until the end of the payload. And uh, one of the things that's very nice about this approach is that we're decoupling the formulation of the drug with the actual kinetics of the drug delivery system. And so that allows us to have a very, very high stability. And we can keep the drug stable and pure, and we can release it at a predetermined rate. How would this be administered? Well, again, knowing that in the clinic, Lucentis is injected uh, via a needle, we really wanted to make this device flexible and um, able to be placed in those same types of needles. And so here's an example where we're actually taking our device, um, we're putting it into a needle, and we're injecting it into the back of the eye, um, in this case in rabbits. And you can see what that looks like. Um, keep in mind, this is a graduate student who's uh, uh, trying to get that film into, a, into the needle. But as you see, we're holding open the, the eye. We're doing an injection. This is very similar to what is done in the clinic. And uh, we put that in there, we press it, and then we take the needle out. And uh, if you look very carefully through that magnifying glass that's sitting right on top of the eye, you can make out the corner of that film. Um, it is transparent, but it sits in the peripheral vitreous. Uh, and it's able to elute drug over time. In vivo, we also see that these things are able to release in at that linear fashion. So um, these are, again, some examples in a, a study in which we basically took devices that were sitting in vitro and releasing drug, and then we took those same devices and we put them into the rabbit eye. And we wanted to ask the question, can these devices release um, in a consistent manner to what we saw in vitro? And what we saw is yes. 
Um, we can continue that profile out. And as compared to uh, an injection, as you see here, we're continuing to have drug uh, being released, whereas in an injection, uh, basically, the drug amounts uh, go back to zero very rapidly. So we're really excited about thinking about a new way that we can deliver these protein and biologics um, in a way that, again, is safe for the patient, but also uh, improves patient compliance, and really, um, we think, uh, might help the visual outcomes by having a continuous therapeutic dose of our intended drug target. One of the things that we have really focused on is the safety and biocompatibility of this type of device. And this is just a little bit of data showing that putting in a polymer film uh, and having it sit there for a period of 6 and even 12 months um, really minimally disturbs the, the back of the eye in terms of uh, the histology of the retina or any other parts of the eye. And uh, what we see is very similar to control eyes uh, in which we place no device. And uh, this is important because, again, if we're going to release a drug that's supposed to be therapeutic, we don't want to induce any other complications. So our goal with this collaboration, and I think, again, the beauty of bringing together clinicians and engineers or other people interested in developing technologies is that we can focus on unmet clinical needs, and in this case, really improving how ocular drugs are delivered, and do that in a way that can, we hope, change the course of administration for not just drugs for the back of the eye, but also uh, drugs for other parts of the body. Um, this is a platform technology, and we hope can be used for um, the delivery of biologics, as well as small molecules, to many, many different places in the body. So where is the future? Well, we're actively um, seeking to scale this device up and hope that we can put this into patients at some point in the near future. Uh, we hope that this technology will really lead to a future where patients have uh, access to a, a better visual outcome. And uh, with this, I'd like to thank our funders, uh, including the NIH, the Coulter Foundation, uh, the Rogers Foundation, and uh, UCSF uh, Catalyst Award for funding the collaboration and the innovation that came through this.